uh, a series now of uh, sermons, uh, five altogether. Neil led last Sunday, as you were thinking about Pentecost. Did that in an exemplary way. I was told with little warning, as I was rather poorly. Um, as the English, that's a lovely word when somebody says you're poorly. Picked that up when I came to England and I taken to it. Well, I was poorly and I'm not anymore. Thank you for your concerns. We're looking at this series on the Holy Spirit. And um, the question to be posed today is, who is the Holy Spirit? Who is the Holy Spirit? Now, I know a lot should and can be said, but for the purpose of one sermon, this is where we're going today. I want uh, you to, uh, to have, present you a, a preparation prayer. It should come in front of you. Uh, it's a prayer that uh, I introduced to our leaders some time ago. I think it was 2011 when we had a retreat. And I want us to read this together. It's there in front of you. You can have a look at it. Um, we're going to read it together um, now. And I just want you to make own that prayer. Make it real for you as you think about where you are in your Christian life thus far. So let's read it together. Come, Holy Spirit. Restore the lives which without you are dead. Kindle the hearts which without you are cold and dull. Enlighten the minds which without you are dark and blind. Fill the church which without you is an empty shrine. And teach us to pray. How to pray. Thank you. I had a good friend whose name was Dennis. We were in the same class and we were members of the same rugby team. He was uh, a prop, which means he was in the scrum, uh, and uh, was selected for his size, not his skill or his speed. You could do that in those days. Uh, but he had one problem. He suffered terribly from time to time with asthma. For those who have suffered and do, you will know how debilitating that can be. So he would turn out and he would play and often halfway through the first half he would go to the goalpost, get the puffer and then resume playing. I often used to admire him for his perseverance, even for his lack of uh, skill and stamina. He had a passion for the game even though in many ways he wasn't particularly um, able to play a full half. Sufferers from asthma will know what a crippling condition it can be. When you are, if you've seen people, gasping for breath, it is literally fighting for life fighting for life. And in its chronic condition, you can't talk, walk, work, or do anything. Barely survive. Now, that's a powerful illustration, I say to you. Now you need to make the transition that the church in many parts of the world today, particularly in the West, is, I suggest to you, make the analogy yourself, in a chronic state of an asthmatic condition. Can't talk, can't function, can't work, 
actually can't do anything. A great hymn a century ago by Edwin Hatch went like this as he looked at the church well over a hundred years ago. Breathe on me, breath of God. Fill me with life anew that I may love what thou dost love and do what thou wouldst do. It's no good just turning up in the jersey, is it? And looking fit. And the church often in the United Kingdom is preoccupied with image rather than substance and purpose. Well, If that's an illustration, and if that's a bit depressing, I think realism compels us to ask where are we at at this particular time. And it would be easy to look at the nation and lament the difficulties in the churches and so forth, and the role of women and one thing and another, but that wouldn't help us much. The, the, The point is, we are here this morning, and this is for you, and this is for me. And what am I going to go home with? It's no good preaching to the people out there, is it? But when we leave here, we'll go rub shoulders with the people out there. So, the word for the Spirit of God in Hebrew and the Greek is highly significant. Breath, wind, spirit. And we've been pursuing those themes in the hymns and songs uh, that we've been singing this morning. And the danger is, in our reading, and language and translation is always a challenge, uh, is that we can miss the richness of the meaning. So what I want to do in this sermon this morning is just give two examples. One from the the reading that we had in the Old Testament, in that uh, famous vision of the valley of dry bones. And then one from an encounter that Jesus has with a very religious and a very sincere person. Let's look at the first. The famous vision in Ezekiel 37, 1 to 14, is the valley of dry bones. Just turn to it for a moment. And here, let me just provoke you now to think about this. There's a tendency among us then and now just to keep our options open, don't commit, stay on the sideline, and here is the valley of dry bones. The question In verse 3, there's the question that's posed. He asked me, son of man, can these bones live? Is there any hope for the church? Can these bones live? I'm going to use the analogy that the church is like a valley of dry bones. May be extreme, but it will suffice. Look at the reply. Classic evangelical reply. Oh, sovereign Lord, you know. And as if the Lord would say, yes, I know, I'm asking you. What do you think? What do you say? Where are you at in this valley of dry bones? So easy, isn't it? You know. God is sovereign. It's okay. Is it? And if it's okay, why is the church in the state that it is in today? It's not good enough to say, Lord, you know, you're sovereign, so that's okay. So he asks Ezekiel to... Do something. Say something. Prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. It's the clarion call to believe. Well, 
God's ruach, God's wind and breath and spirit will infuse new life into these dry bones. And it's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Perfect picture language of dearth and dryness and arid circumstances to life and movement and vast, mighty army. You couldn't have a greater contrast. And the crucial thing in the middle is God's Spirit doing something. Something new. Something dynamic. Something very powerful. So, quick, quickly then, you, the, the, the application, surely, surely is this. That every generation of believers... Every 15 years or so, 20 years, needs a constant refreshing, renewing of the Holy Spirit collectively. Hopefully, in our individual quiet times and our prayers and our longings for God to do something, to bring redemption into our homes, to bring salvation to our children or our parents or our friends and so forth. We want our friends to be with us in heaven. And we dare not keep it to ourselves. Reading this fascinating book uh, of people who are writing in about their experience of John Stott and so forth. And it's quite extraordinary. He's a remarkable man in every way. And yet he looked at the church that he loved and served for 90, well, he lived for 90 years, served from his young days. And lamented our, he included himself, our guilty silence. Son of man, can these bones live? You know. Well then, tell me. So, Ezekiel can't just say, you know. He has to speak. Break the silence. Every generation it needs a constant infilling of God's Spirit. But notice carefully, I, I, don't, want you, I don't want you to be particularly concerned with what I am saying. I want you to get a sense of what this prophecy is saying is much more important. And you notice carefully in Ezekiel 37, this perfect balance, if there is a perfect balance, we're always striving for it, it's word and spirit. Now I want to labour this point a bit for obvious reasons, should become clear in a moment. But look at verse 37, for example. Let's look at word. Or prophesying, proclaiming, that's what you have here. Okay? Turn in to, well, stay in Ezekiel 37. Look at verse, for the sake of time, 4, 7, 9, and more. And each time, prophesy to these bones. Verse 7, I prophesied. Verse 9, prophesy. Verse 9 again, prophesy. Verse 10, I prophesied. And so on and so forth. I think it's rather obvious, isn't it, that there's a lot of that going on. Here is a powerful word ministry. The word of the Lord. No substitute for that. Okay, that's obvious. Okay. But notice also, alongside that, verses 5, 6, 9 and others, this reference to, look, verse 5, just, I will make breath enter in you and you will Come to life. Verse 6. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Verse 9. O breath, 
breathe into these slain that they might live. And verse 14. He has a wonderful... Just take that sentence home with you for nothing else. From 37 verse 14. I will put my spirit in you and you will live. That's a great verse. Well, I've laboured that point, I know. But why? Well, for this reason. You can go to some churches and they say, we have a word ministry. Good. And so we should. But if you stop there, is that it? And you go to other churches, you know what I'm saying, it's a caricature, but nevertheless it's true. Well, you know, we have, we have the Spirit. And that's so important. And certain things happen. Now, the point of us, if we are really wanting an authentic move of God's Spirit to renew and revive the church, you must, it is imperative, you must have both. Must have both. That's the appeal. Now, there you are. That's, so, I've provoked you enough to think about that. Let's come to the New Testament um, and come to John chapter 3. Let's look at this and see the same Spirit working. John chapter 3, verse 6 to 10. And how fascinating it is without contriving at all to see that you have this same element, the same dynamic. It's it's very well known part of, of John's Gospel. He's talking to a theological professor, a well-respected churchman, a very sincere, thoughtful man. He has the courage of his conviction to go and visit Jesus and that wasn't a good thing to do. So he goes at night and there's this dialogue, this encounter. So we take up the reading, John chapter 3, verse 6. Jesus is using an illustration. Verse 5, Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, spirit gives birth to spirit. At that point, it's worth saying that Nicodemus would have distanced himself from the baptism of John. And Jesus is affirming that as a preparation for a greater baptism. That's the context. But read on, verse 7. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases. You hear the sound. You hear its sound. But you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. And here is, comes now a massive put-down by Jesus. <laughs> Nicodemus said, well, how, how can this be? You get into this as if Jesus said, hold on a moment. You are a respected leader, teacher, professor in the rabbinic schools and you don't understand these things? What are you doing? What are you doing? So in spite of all his good religion and discipline and evident sincerity, being born of the Spirit is like the wind that blows. Where does it come from? Where does it go? You can't see it. You certainly see its effects. And the challenge of Jesus then and now is not to stop at explaining with the word. Good sermon. Good teaching. Let's go home. No. 
Look, you see, he doesn't stop there. But he has this personal encounter with Nicodemus and goes for the jugular and says, you need to be born again. Your religion can only take you so far. Your sincerity only so much. I think this can be illustrated perfectly in um, a, perhaps a more modern example. Let's leave Nicodemus for a moment. Let's come to about the late uh, 1890s. And there was uh, a vicar from Cornwall by the name of William Haslam. Just read uh, an account of his life. Fascinating um, encounter that he had. And let me give you this account how he was converted. He's a vicar. And one day, much to his surprise, his gardener, vicars had gardeners and servants and big houses. You should bring back the good old days, shouldn't you? Don't think so. Anyway, his gardener comes to him and he says to him, you're a vicar. I've come to put my faith in Jesus Christ. And William Haslam didn't know how to answer him. So he went to visit his colleague in a neighbouring parish. And a dialogue begins with two vicars. His friend asked him, have you peace with God? To which Aslam replied, of course God is my friend. Pursuing the point further, his colleague asked him, how do you get that peace? He replied, I get it in the daily service. I get it through prayer and reading and especially through Holy Communion. I've made it a rule to carry my sins there every Sunday and sometimes I come away as free as a bird. And how long does this peace last? His colleague asks him. For most of the week, most times. Then his friend told him about the living water that Jesus promised welling up within to eternal life. And Haslam says to his friend that he knew very little of this, but longed to have it. So they parted, good friends. The following Sunday, Haslam climbed into his pulpit and announced his text from the King James Version, of course, in those days. What think ye of Christ? And he describes what happened next. Let me read it to you. As I went on to explain the passage, I saw that the Pharisees and scribes did not know Christ was the Son of God or that he had come to save them. Something was telling me all the time, William, you are no better than the Pharisees yourself. You do not believe he is the Son of God that he has come to save you from your sin. I do not remember all that I said, but I felt a wonderful light and joy come into my soul and I was beginning to see what the Pharisees did not see. Whether it was my words or the manner in which I spoke them, I know not. But all of a sudden, a local preacher who happened to be in the congregation stood up and putting his arms up, shouted in the Cornish manner, The parson is converted! The parson is converted! Hallelujah! And so... The diary goes on. In other moments, other voices was lost in shouts of praise of up to 300 in the congregation. And instead of rebuking this extraordinary brawling, as I once might have done, 
I joined in the outburst of praise. Then he describes how at least 20 people in the congregation cried for mercy and professed faith and joy in believing, including three members of his family. Final part of this. The news spread like wildfire throughout the town. The vicar had been converted by his own sermon. <laughs> that is as it is recorded in the annals of um, his life. And you can read much more a fascinating book about his encounter. But like Haslam, or like Nicodemus, surely, is this not true? It is only too possible to become so acquainted with Jesus and yet not fully know him. What Jesus does with Nicodemus is explain so that he has an encounter. At what point? It's hard to say, of course. So what Jesus does, he helps Nicodemus to make the connection. That's what we have to do. Make the connection between himself and the valley of dry bones. Just turn over to John 7 as we try to apply this. And stay with, the, with Nicodemus. Stay with um, what we've read. John 7 and verse 37. Okay. We're trying to make the connection now between Jesus, Nicodemus, the Valley of Dry Bones. Okay? Verse 37, John 7. On the last and the greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood up and said in a loud voice, can you imagine that? If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this, make no doubt about it, he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not been given. Jesus had not yet been glorified. Stay with this passage just to make a further connection. Look in verse 40. On hearing these words, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. Others said, he's the Messiah, the Christ. Still others said, how can the Christ come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that the Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town of David, and so on and so forth? There was a division among them. Now look at verse 50. Nicodemus. Why does he speak up now? Who had gone to Jesus earlier, and who was one of their own number, asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he is doing? They replied, are you from Galilee? Which is a, a massive cynicism, a cynical put-down. Look into it. You will find that the prophet does not come out of Galilee. And they missed the blessing. Three quick pointers when we think then to try to personalize our understanding of the Holy Spirit. Number one, the Holy Spirit convicts of sin. Neil was mentioning that last Sunday, the first sermon under the auspices of the church in Acts chapter 2. And when the language barriers of the nations were removed, speaking in their own distinctive mother tongue, why? That people might 
be confronted by a Savior and have their sins forgiven. Secondly, the Holy Spirit not only convicts of sin and points to a living Savior, the Holy Spirit imparts life. That's the whole point, isn't it, of the Valley of Dry Bones. Imparts life. The basic difference between a living and a dead person. The former breathes and the latter has stopped breathing. Whatever the cause is, that's the difference essentially, isn't it? Think of it like that. The former breathes, the latter has stopped breathing. And lastly, the Holy Spirit brings power. Power. Now, of course, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Uh, this is a power that has qualifications and conditions. So you come back to this uh, encounter with the Lord Jesus. John 3, verse 8. The wind blows where it will, where it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Holy Spirit. You can't orchestrate this. You can't manipulate. Power to bring new life. The Holy Spirit, by definition, like the wind, is unseen, but his impact is tangible. Transforming, making us more like the Lord Jesus. And finally, I challenge you, if you haven't been challenged already, don't be afraid of emotion. Whatever your temperament, whatever your predisposition, don't be afraid of emotion. I tell you what you should be afraid of. Be afraid of apathy. Be afraid of complacency. Don't be afraid of emotion. Emotion is not the enemy. Apathy is. And whatever your experience thus far of the Holy Spirit, he has still much more to do and to give in your life and mine. And if people are bad ambassadors of the Holy Spirit, then may he drive you to his word and give you confidence to trust him to do new things in your life personally and to all of us collectively. Who is the Holy Spirit? He's all of this and much more. Let's trust him and believe in him to take us into a new generation experience his grace and power.